Good evening, everyone. I'd like to begin this evening with a little cosmological update. You know, everybody here is kind of inward and looking inside, and uh, there are amazing things going on in the universe you should know about. Just a couple weeks ago, astronomers announced that they had discovered a, another planet going around another sun, and they were, got very excited because they're pretty sure that this planet could support life. It's a, what they call a Goldilocks planet. <laughs> not too hot, not too cold. And they named this planet Gliese. 581G. So if there are beings, we might refer to them as Gleasers from now on. And uh, Gleese 581G goes around its sun every 37 days. So the beings that live there get to live to be a lot older than we do. The exciting thing is that Gliese 581g is one of many, many planets that are being found in our galaxy that could support life. There are thousands of them, they believe, in our galaxy alone that could support life. And considering that there is an estimated 100 billion galaxies, the chances are very, very good that there is life everywhere out there. I think it's really good news because it takes the pressure off of us. <laughs> we no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. <laughs> it's very, very exciting. So, you know, it, it could affect your, your sitting practice. It very well could. By the way, Gliese 581g is 100 trillion miles away from the Earth. So you can imagine that they are just about to watch their first episode of I Love Lucy. <laughs> Not in reruns, either. So. Last night, Robert, uh, in his wonderful talk, uh, towards the end, mentioned the five hindrances. And uh, since you're probably very, very uh, familiar with them after the first two days. I'd like to explore them a little further tonight. Um, but I want to start with uh, a most difficult mind state that we all experience from time to time, and that is a mind full of thinking. I think I was first drawn to meditation because I realized that my mind had a thinking problem. <laughs> it would start thinking the minute I got up in the morning, continue to think throughout the afternoon. I had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night. <laughs> it was a heavy thinker, my mind, and I needed an intervention. <laughs> and I tried therapies and I tried various uh, other methods to blow my mind, as we used to say. But uh, 
<laughs> then I found the meditation practice and developed mindfulness, this quality that nobody had ever told me about in my culture. Uh, I was 26, 27 years old, had a good college degree, had done some therapies, but nobody told me that there was this faculty of my own mind that I could develop and just simply observe myself, step outside of my own drama and observe myself. Kind of set up uh, my, myself as my own shrink, you know, who would just listen to me babble on and occasionally nod and say, uh-huh, what else? <laughs> and I wouldn't have to pay it $120 an hour. And as I started to, you know, observe myself, uh, it, was, it was pretty disturbing, that first look especially. First look was, was shocking because I realized that my mind was out of control. I'm sure that's, that comes as a surprise to you, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, it happens almost every time I sit down to meditate. I think, you know, the whole day before I sat down to meditate, I was sort of running on, on empty or running on non-awareness, just automatic pilot. I was not aware of what I was doing. And I think most people go through their lives and never realize that they are, uh, that they are running on that automatic uh, conditioning that, and that, that sort of run-on mind. So it was a shock and a gift to see this mind full of, full of thinking. This is Ergen Tulku, great sage of 20th century sage. The stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person without any knowledge whatsoever about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness. And a the person is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. This is the case for most of humanity. This is the case for most people in our culture, this advanced culture. We're very identified with our thinking. It's what we get graded on in school. It's how we define ourselves, our thinking mind. Descartes even, you know, said, I think, therefore I am. Not only that, whatever we are thinking at any given moment is what we are. We're so identified with it, with the thinking, with the thought. Descartes should have said, I think, therefore I think I am. <laughs> Actually, he should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. <laughs> Before I started meditation, I was completely identified with thinking, with the content of thinking, but I had never begun to explore the process of thinking. The Buddha keeps instructing us, you know, to take this experience and ask the question, what is its ancestry? What is its origin? Who owns it? 
I had never really looked at my thinking that way. I had always been involved in the content, never saw the process. And that's what we begin to explore and see clearly in meditation practice. Where did these thoughts come from? Why can't I stop them? You know, it's phenomenal. It's, 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 a, it's a phenomenal process that just goes on without our awareness and unless we're really directed and, and begin to see it. What is a thought? It's a pulse of the brain. Not that different, really, than other pulses in our body. A thought is just a, a firing of the synapses that signals a particular image, a particular configuration of meaning. As someone once said, the thought of your mother is not your mother. And yet we take our thoughts to be so real. They trigger our fears and our sorrows and our desires and our... We take them to be actual things. I, I find it somewhat ironic that I spent the first half of my life learning how to think. And now I'm spending the second half of my life trying to learn how to ignore my thinking. What was I thinking? You know, it's... <laughs> now, I don't want to give the impression that thoughts are bad. It's a major misconception about meditation, uh, especially for beginners, is that we want to get rid of thoughts. We don't want to get rid of thoughts. We just want to expose our mind to itself. When you see your thinking mind and the proliferation of thoughts that happens, it's, not, it's a triumph. It's not a failure. You're beginning to understand how the mind works, how the thinking process works. You really are gaining a, a, an enormous amount of wisdom about how your reality is created. What could be more important? Thoughts uh, as a species, very useful, you know. Thinking is our genius. We make up these complex symbols that carry agreed upon meanings and allows us to share our understanding with each other and pass it on for generations. Uh, it helps us survive. But as a species, we've grown to believe that our thinking makes us superior to the rest of creation. This is Charlie Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Stephen Jay Gould said, an octopus, octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. What they are saying is that thinking is, uh, the thinking mind is basically a local adaptation, a new sense, a tool, uh, another way of perceiving and uh, knowing of the world. 
and interpreting the world. The Buddha saw it that way. He, he thought of the thinking mind as a sixth sense, not elevated as higher or lower than seeing or tasting or hearing. A way of monitoring the world. I think it's, it's uh, very useful to, to begin to regard the thinking mind as a biological function, uh, as a survival adaptation. It helps to depersonalize and demystify this whole process of thinking. Sometime take a, take a session of meditation and see how many of your thoughts have something to do with survival, something to do with your future existence. Include in that, you know, your place in the pecking order, and it's just about every, every thought you'll have. Just, I, I sometimes try to imagine 20,000 years ago, what were our ancestors thinking, you know? I wonder who's going on the hunt tomorrow. I don't like the color of my spear. <laughs> who's watching the fire, you know? How, how different are our thoughts from that? Our thoughts about our retirement, and, you know? Now, as uh, you watch your thinking mind in meditation, you might notice that thoughts are often accompanied by distinctive moods or feelings. And commonly, these are one of the five hindrances. Desire, aversion, restlessness, doubt, and sloth and torpor. The public interest law firm. Has there, is there anyone here who has not experienced one or more of these mind states in the last two days? Anyone? Now there's your clue. It's not about you. We hold these moods, these feelings, these mind states in common with each other. They're part of what it means to get a body and a nervous system and be a human being. Don't take them personally. They come, they move through, they have their say, and the more you begin to pay attention to them, the less power they have over you, the more freedom you actually can, can find from these instincts that you really inherit. You inherit from the history of life on this planet. So I don't consider uh, some of these hindrances, these mind states, but uh, I'll, I'll look at a, a desire and aversion together. They're really two sides of the same coin. Uh, a, a state of dissatisfied, dissatisfied mind, either moving towards something or away from something. Um, it really, they're, they're, the, they're the instincts that run the show. They run the world. Movement toward, movement away from. You can think that even, that every, every living being has some form of desire or aversion. A tree 
can be thought of as having desire for the sunlight, grows upward, it's reaching. Uh, you know, an animal runs away from a, a loud sound, you know, fear, aversion. It's what rules the world. So it's, it's not like it's bad to have it. it. It's in the service of our existence. Long before Darwin or Freud, uh, the Buddha understood that the, these instincts are really ruling us. He called them underlying tendencies. He got down to the very root of the, of the experience. You have pleasant sensations, you want more of them. You have unpleasant sensations, you want them to go away. If you react and begin pushing away or grasping for, it eventually turns into greed, wanting, it turns into a whole uh, constellation of deeper and deeper feelings of, of desire and aversion. The beginning is pleasant and unpleasant sensations. It's built into the mammalian condition. This is neuroscientist uh, and, and anthropologist Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire. Best described by the phrase, I want. Spoken with or without an object for the verb. I want. That seems to be the default setting of our brain. And you know, it, it's, you may be able to find some freedom from it through this wonderful process. But it is really hardwired, really, really hardwired. Another way of thinking about it, uh, Dr. Paul McLean, one of the great scientists of the 20th century, was studying how the brain develops in evolution and realized that we don't have a brain. We have three brains, and they grow in each of us in, uh, as we develop in the same order that they grew in nature. First we grow a brain stem, also known as the reptilian brain. And then we grow a mammalian brain, the limbic system. And then we grow the new human brain, or neocortex. And it turns out that one brain doesn't override the other brains. They're all intimately interconnected. And more and more research, serious research, is indicating that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we are not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. I mean, Freud understood. Freud figured that out. And, and you know, almost anybody can figure it out if you really pay attention to yourself and how, you, how your, your life runs. We get to see that up close and personal in meditation. We get to learn about it as a personal experience. And that begins to shift uh, how we react in our lives. 
whether we can see it or not determines whether we, we can gain any freedom at all from it. It's really the, the foundation of the Buddha's uh, second noble truth that the cause of our suffering is the desire itself, is the, that wheel of dissatisfaction itself. It's not because we haven't gotten our latest desire fulfilled, because it just keeps going. It just keeps, the dissatisfaction keeps happening. The, the verb, you know, is I want. The Buddha's third noble truth is that we can actually see it and calm the mind. The Buddha, the first insight is that the thirst of craving is the basis of our suffering. The second insight is that by the cooling of this thirst, no more suffering is created. It's a shock, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, you sit in meditation and you watch your mind just going from one thing to another, just refusing to settle down, refusing to accept this moment as enough. You, you often find that you'll have, have multiple hindrance attacks. As Robert, I think, pointed that out last night. You can, you know, be sitting there and your knee starts to hurt and you have aversion, which brings about desire for the bell to ring. The bell rings and there's a moment of satisfaction as you uncoil your painful legs. And then as you start to get up, you start to have desire for something. You have, first of all, you have think, oh, it's a walking period. I have aversion for that. <laughs> I think I'd like to go back to my room and look at my stuff for a while. So <laughs> there's a desire arising and it's a desire and aversion and a desire and aversion. It's just... The mind has no shame, you know? It's like, no shame. You ever desire to be where you already are? <laughs> or you're some, you know, you're, you're in a great situation, you're having a, you could be having a great moment, but your mind is saying, oh, if only there was just this little different, you know, the weather was a little warmer, that, you know, Basho, great haiku poet, father of poet, haiku poetry. I am in Kyoto, yet I long for Kyoto. <laughs> oh, bird of time. Our civilization is a real lesson in desire. In the, in the unsatisfactory nature of trying to get everything that you want. I mean, who could want more than what we have? Physically, materially, diversion, entertainment, education, food, shelter. Back in the 70s, when we were having a, what the, we called the energy crisis, remember that? A uh, friend and I were on the radio. We, we made up this, this uh, advertisement. I'll read you a little of it. 
Are you worried about the energy crisis? Disgusted with high utility bills? Take control of your life today and make your home energy self-sufficient with U.S. Adams Home Nuclear Reactor. Small enough to fit into your abandoned fallout shelter, yet powerful enough to power your major home appliances, including your washer, dryer, stove, refrigerator, freezer, microwave, waffle iron, toaster, coffee maker, mixer, blender, food processor, crock pot, electric wok, electric knife, knife sharpener, can opener, popcorn popper, cheese grater, meat slicer, dishwasher, garbage disposal, trash compactor, electric broom, vacuum cleaner, water heater, hot tub, sauna, water pick, electric toothbrush, alarm clock, AM, FM, radio, tape deck, turntable, amplifier, color televisions, VCR, electric lights, and your automatic, automatic garage door opener on and on. Your home nuclear reactor comes fully equipped with a lightweight plastic containment vessel and easy to follow emergency instructions in case of a mini meltdown. <laughs> How many of those appliances did you, do you own? It's amazing. And of course, we're now realizing that we are reaching the limits of, of our desire. I mean, maybe meditation is here just in time to save us from our own, you know, overweening greed and, and, uh, and, and uh, the fact that we don't get it yet, that it, it's not going to make us happy. I think we should all start working with the mantra, enough, enough. We've got enough stuff, enough, enough. We've got enough stuff. So aversion, desire, again, we, ha we have to bow to them on some level because they are in our service, in the service of survival. And hopefully we will gain enough intelligence and enough understanding of ourselves to be able to mitigate that desire and that aversion and, and find a middle path. <laughs> the Dalai Lama, I was once lucky enough and just by chance happened to be on a, on a flight with him, an 18-seater from Dharamsala, where he lives, to New Delhi, where he had some business with the Indian government. And uh, I was going to the airport with my friend, and the streets were lined with Tibetans waving and carrying flowers, and I waved from the taxi. I, thought, <laughs> I know they hated to see me go. But uh, it was for the Dalai Lama. I got to the airport, and the Dalai Lama was on the plane, and my friend was reading his autobiography, where he writes that he was, he's afraid of horses and flying. And he was sitting a few rows behind me, and he had cotton in his ears, and he had his head up against the window, and he was doing his mala, and he was terrified. He was terrified. I felt a lot safer having him on the plane with me, but... <laughs> and we were flying over the, over the foothills of the Himalayas, so, you know, it wasn't, wasn't that much fun, but... But even the Dalai Lama, you know, I mean... It's part of being human, having, having this stuff. 
desire, aversion. Another common difficult state we encounter in meditation is doubt. I think a better word is uncertainty, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. If you, if you pay attention to your own mind and, and start to realize how much doubt you have about yourself, I think you'll be, you'll pre- be pretty amazed. You know, what am I doing here? Where am I going next? Who am I? What's the right thing for me to do? Should I wear the green socks or the blue socks? You know, we have so many choices. That's one, one problem, one creator of doubt. But really, it's a form of fear. The uncertainty about what's going to happen. And doubt is usually underneath a lot of planning mind. How can I, you know, kind of rehearse and set it up so that I'm going to be okay in the future? We crave certainty, and it's too bad because we can't be certain about anything. Any, as my teacher friend Joseph Goldstein says, anything can happen at any time. There is no certainty. We have to, in some level, live with what Alan Watts called the the wisdom of insecurity. Can you be okay with not knowing what's going to happen to you? It's a real challenge. The only thing we know is that we don't know. Although Donald Rumsfeld said there are things we don't know we don't know. (laughs) Which is, he had a lot of doubt, apparently. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think he didn't have enough doubt. And doubt happens not just in the face of uh, difficulty, but also... I mean, I I crave peak experiences, and I'm always in doubt as to which one is better and which one I should choose and how I should go about how I should go about attaining this or that experience. Sokni Rinpoche calls it high class confusion. <laughs> but most of my doubt, and I I see it in yogis, most of the, our doubt is about ourselves. You know, am I good enough? Can I do this? Am I, do I, am I good looking enough? Am I able, capable? And we live in, in a culture that's so focused on the individual that we feel that we create our own destiny and that, you know, our whole, our whole life is dependent, is, is riding on our shoulders. Nobody says, God willing even, or you know, n- nobody talks about circumstances. It's all about uh, your individual performance. And that's really a heavy burden to carry. We really, uh, you know, we're not so much in charge. Our lives and how things turn out depends on 
so many circumstances, so many other uh, causes and conditions being just right. And yet we take it all on ourselves. Alfred Adler, famous psychologist of the last century, said to be human is to feel inferior. In our culture, too, we see these images of these beautiful people and rich people and happy people and, you know, and it's sort of like, if only I could be like that. I'm not enough unless I'm like that, unless I'm wearing what they're wearing, unless I'm driving what they're driving. And the images are impossible to live up to. In Buddhist literature, comparison is one of the last defilements of the mind to be uprooted before complete enlightenment. I think as long if we're going to compare ourselves, you know, why not pick, say, people who had to live before the year 1900? Or 1800? Their lifespan was about half of what ours is expected lifespan is. They had to live without painkillers, antibiotics, Velcro. <laughs> how did they survive? Think of how much do you have to be, uh, you know, how good you're doing compared to them. I think the ultimate statement of doubt comes from Woody Allen, who, who said, is there a mind-body split? And if so, which is more important? <laughs> the final two hindrances, restlessness, sloth, and torpor, really energetic states. And I think we really feel them here in, in the meditation retreat because we are messing with our psyche, our nervous system, in, in such a radical way. First of all, we come from these very busy lives where the mind is fully engaged and, uh, you know, multitasking and, you know, texting and chewing gum at the same time and driving and, you know, it, and then we come here and we sort of pull all the distraction, all the kind of like pulling the binky away from a kid, you know, <laughs> giving you nothing to chew on, but, but your own detrius. It's, uh, you know, it's... So you, you feel uh, restless. <laughs> Or you just, you know, you, you feel how tired you really are, right? tired, how tired you've been. And you really, you, you kind of relapse into a, into a state of real sleepiness and sluggishness. It's part of the price we pay of being citizens of a superpower. Also, you know, our, our minds are the product of brains that are 
that were designed and developed over hundreds of thousands of years for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. This is the brain we still have. So, you know, if there if there's stuff out there, you're, you're supposed to go get it. You know, it's just like your addiction to shopping is, is understandable. <laughs> and you're always supposed to be doing something, you know, that's going to help protect you or help, you know, increase your storehouse of stuff. And here we are doing nothing, trying to learn how to just be. What a strange thing to try to just be and not have to do something. I mean, partly we, we, we think of ourselves as doing something. I'm fixing my, my mind now. That's what I'm doing here. Uh, so that when I get out of here, it's going to be all, you know, coming up roses. It's interesting. If you really catch yourself, you know, doing that, kind of, you're, you're meditating so that you will be better when you get out. See if you can bring that back to just being that the only reason for this moment's meditation is this moment. We're learning a whole different kind of behavior, being, and a different kind of knowing not necessarily conceptual, analytic understanding of ourselves, but a kind of intuitive, experiential knowing. I think we all realize that what we're doing is not only perfectly natural, but it is vital to, to awaken vital for our own self and for the future of our species, for the future of life on this planet. So let me say a few things about, those are the five hindrances, kind of short, shorthand look at them. Uh, and even though we all get most of these mind states at some time or another, we all get a preponderance of one or another because we're all born with a particular temperament, a proclivity towards one or another of these, these uh, difficulties. <coughs> all, all cultures in history, in recorded history, have known that people are born with particular temperaments. The early Greeks believed it was dependent on a mixture of the four humors, uh, blood, bile, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm. And depending on whether you got an, a, you know, a heavy dose of one or another, you turned out a particular way. If you had a heavy dose of blood in your, the mixture of your humors, you would be sanguine, warm. If you had a lot of phlegm, you would be phlegmatic. <laughs> Hence the words, you know. Uh, the Chinese believe we're all born with a particular mix of yin and yang. And it's workable, you know, that you can bring them into some kind of balance, but that 
Everybody is born with a particular uh, preponderance of one or the other. Uh, both the Greeks and the Chinese associated people with an element of nature. You're stiff like wood or you're soft like air. We all get born with a feel to us. Over the centuries, all these different typologies have been developed, you know, astrology, uh, the Enneagram, which someone said is nine different kinds of suffering. <laughs> There's the Disney, the Disney typology. You're dopey, sleepy, or grumpy. The scientists dismiss all those old typologies, but now they have their own. Uh, I read a report that they're looking for genes that select for four different personality types. Uh, um, novelty seeking, reward dependent, pain avoidance, and persistence. And they did find a gene that they thought uh, selected for novelty seeking behavior. It had an extra long dopamine receptor uh, on it. Kind of a Freudian thing there, you know. <laughs> the, the article I read about the, this was uh, that one of the chief researchers developing this, you know, search for the genes was Dr. Cloninger, Robert Cloninger. Uh, I want to read you this quote from uh, Jerome Kagan, a, a Harvard psychologist and professor who did a long-term study of, of babies uh, and found evidence that children inherit a certain, a certain neurochemistries that affect how they react to novelty and uh, causing them to be either relatively inhibited or outgoing. And these are traits that tend to last a lifetime, they found in these, in these long-term studies. Uh, Kagan wrote in his book, Galen's Prophecy, quote, I have become, uh, after many years of studying the origin and nature of temperament, I have become more forgiving of the few friends and family members who see danger too easily, who rise to anger too quickly, or sink to despair too often. I no longer blame them privately and have become more accepting and less critical of their moods and idiosyncrasies. Can we forgive ourselves? for our particular temperament, our t particular bundle of difficult uh, mind states. In the, our, our school of Buddhism, the Theravadan school, there are three different personality types, temperaments. The greed type, the aversion type, and the deluded type. Uh, I'm a greed type. I'm proud of it. <laughs> I mean, if you've got to be one of the three, you know. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is from the Visuddhi Magga, describing, uh, which is a commentary, uh, commentarial text, uh, describing the characteristic behavior of uh, each of the three types in everyday situations such as walking, talking, even getting ready for bed. So this is, uh, this is the description. When they sit or lie down to go to sleep, one of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry, 
and sleeps mostly face downward with their bodies sprawling. When woken, they get up slowly saying, huh? <laughs> one, of, one of angry temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, puts their foot down quickly, lifts it up quickly. When one of greedy temperament sees even a slightly pleasing visible object, they look long as if surprised. They seize on trivial virtues. And on and on. There's a way in which we have to embrace our temperament. I mean, I, I remember when I first started meditating, I thought maybe I could get a different personality. You know, I could get a whole, I could become someone totally different. And other people have, have told me that they kind of thought that too. But after 35, 40 years of doing the practice, I'm, I'm basically the same person I was when I started. I, I, I must say that I don't think I take my personality quite so personally. Uh, I, I see it more as a, as a kind of pet. You know, it's, a, it's always there, and it comes to, you know, bother me from time to time. Sometimes I let it off the leash. But I don't think I'm going to get rid of it, you know? The Spanish proverb, natures and features survive to the grave. I think that was a proverb that came before plastic surgery. <laughs> Rumi said, what I want most is to spring out of this personality and to sit apart from that leaping. I've lived too long where I could be reached. But... I don't expect to get rid of my personality anymore. I, I, I think that after meditating for all these years, I, I allowed myself now to, I allow myself now to be more of who I, who I am. That I don't censor myself quite as much. Much to the chagrin of some. How to work with our package of difficult mind states, hindrances, difficult emotions. Basically, let them be. Let them have their life. Bring our mindful attention to them and let them live. In the Mahasatipatthana Sutra, the Buddha, when he's talking about mind states and how to, how to be with them, it, there's no judgment, there's no... Uh, there's not much instruction, really, except... One knows that when the mind is full of lust, that the mind is full of lust. When one, one knows when there is hatred in the mind, there is hatred in the mind. It's a simple awareness that this has arisen. It's a way of becoming familiar with being human. Rather than liking and disliking and letting any mind state define you or letting yourself drown in it. You become intimate with them and you see them. They, they come and go. Take a, take a morning, take two hours and count how many moods move through you in a two-hour period of time. You'll be amazed at how many. You know, there may, some might be pretty subtle, but I mean, what were you feeling like this morning at 10 o'clock? Do you remember? Does any, you know, 
or when you first woke up this morning, where you first came in here and sat down and said, oh no, <laughs> or oh boy, I don't know, maybe you said oh boy, and it wasn't until 11 o'clock that you said oh no. <laughs> it's really interesting to really start to pay attention to the moods as they arise and move through us. And it is how we, we, we work with them. There's no fix. It's uh, like Robert was talking about last night. It's learning how to accept. This is what is. This is what it means to be human. In uh, this wonderful book called uh, The Flight of the Garuda, in Tibetan Buddhism, they, they do some pretty wild things to sort of make you aware of emotional states and to kind of let you confront, uh, you know, your, your wildest and most intense uh, emotions. Uh, in one part of the book, The Flight of the Garuda, it tells you how to encourage and enhance your difficult emotional states. For instance, instruction, this is an instruction in creative emotivity. This is an ancient text, by the way. I think 1600s. At one time or another, all of you have been injured by others. Conscientiously recollect in detail how others have wrongfully accused you, victimized you, humiliated you, ground you into the ground, how you were shamed and mortified. Brood on these things, letting hatred arise. And as it arises, look directly at its essence, at hatred itself. Then ask yourself, where does the hatred come from? Where is it now? Where does it go to? Look carefully for its color and shape and any other characteristics. Surely the vision of your anger is ultimately empty without self. And then it says, do not reject anger. It is mirror-like awareness. Oh, I like this one. This is for lovers. All you lovers, think of the beautiful man or woman in your heart. You gluttons. Consider the food you crave, meat, cake, or fruit. You strutting peacocks, recall and dwell on the clothes you like to wear. You avaricious traders, think about the form of wealth you desire, horses, jewelry, or cash. Carefully considering these matters, allow desire to arise, and when it arises, look directly at its essence, at the greedy and lustful self. Then ask where it comes from. Where is it now? Where does it go to? Look carefully for its color and shape and any other characteristics. Inviting, inviting these difficult mind states to be present and to be as big as, as they want to be. And then we get not only familiar with them, we realize that we can be okay with them, that we have this quality of mindful attention, this acceptance of them. And, we don't have to drown in them or, or be defined by them. And in that way, we not only 
we, we learn to be human and we realize also that everyone, this is the package we get. And it starts to help us develop compassion for each other. We're all, we all have these times of hatred and fear and sorrow. And so a little bit about the hindrances how to be with them how to work with them a little bit i think the most important message is welcome to the human realm and uh congratulations for being here and di- uncovering and discovering what it what it involves and realizing it's not your fault it's not all about you and that you can find some freedom and you can find some ease in this world in this body we're doing it together you know we're waking up together so I'll end with Rumi One dervish to another. What was your vision of God's presence? I haven't seen anything, but for the sake of conversation, I'll tell you a story. God's presence is there in front of me. A fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks toward the fire, into the fire. Another toward the sweet flowing water. But no one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. The head goes under on the water surface and that head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. And the trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am the fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. Let's sit for just a moment.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.